You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. text reading for today is Psalm 103. If you want to turn there, you can follow along on the screen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will, Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Please pray with me. Father, your word is true food for our souls. These are your very words. As we read this text, you speak to us, just as you did through David, to your nation, thousands of years ago. Help us see what's here in the text. For us, help us to take this in, to digest it, to chew on it, to appropriate it to our own condition, our own souls, our own worries, our own trials, our own temptations. And God, wash your bride, the church, clean of all spot and wrinkle through your word this morning. Amen. Morning, if you're new, my name is Scott. I'm a pastoral resident here. We've been preaching through the Psalms uh, all summer, and uh, I'd like you to have Psalm 103 open. If you've got a Bible next to you, that's going to be on page 502. If you have your own Bible, you're welcome to use one on your phone or something like that. Psalm 103, again, page 502 in the, uh, the Bibles under your seats. And Rachel already read this for us. Thank you for doing that, Rachel. This, this whole Psalm starts with something that really confuses me a little bit. It's this idea in verses 1 to 2. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And here's the question. I don't feel like I really have an answer to. What does it mean to bless the Lord? What does it mean to bless the Lord? Three times in the first two verses, we're told in command form to bless the Lord, or David commands his own soul to bless the Lord. What does that mean? How can you and I bless God? I think we typically think of blessing as bestowing favor, honor, could be riches even, some sort of benefit on someone else. And that's clearly what God's going to do to us in this psalm, but how on earth can you and I bless God from whom all things come. The word for bless in Hebrew is Barak, like Barack Obama, actually. And um, it can also mean kneel, uh, to kneel down. And for instance, in Genesis 24, 11, uh, when Abraham's servant goes looking for a wife for Isaac, he brings his camels to the well, and he causes them to Barak, to kneel at the well. Um, there's kind of like a specific verb form there that you get that out of. 
And the direct object in the sentence, if you look at verse 1, if you were to see it in Hebrew, it's very clearly a command to my soul to do this blessing thing to the Lord, to bestow favor or honor on the Lord, right? How does this work? Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And now God says all the blessings he's going to shower on Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So clearly in there, God is the one doing all the blessing. Or another great example, Numbers 6, 23 to 27. To Moses, the Lord spoke, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. It's this call for Aaron to pronounce a blessing on the people of Israel, and God, the one who's backing that up with covenant promises. In all these instances, God is the one who blesses. So here's this conundrum, right? How on earth can we bless God? Hebrews 7, 7 actually says this explicitly in the context of Abraham and this figure named Melchizedek. Abraham offered him up a tenth of everything he had, and he's clearly saying, like, well, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. We are the inferiors. God is the superior. It is beyond dispute that that's how things work. So how are we supposed to do this psalm and bless the Lord? What does it mean to bless the Lord? What could you and I possibly do to bestow favor and blessing on God Almighty? Job 41.11, we read this back in May. God himself says to Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So what does this mean? I seriously, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I can't tell us, but I think the psalmist is going to show us through the psalm. Here's the first hint. It comes at the end of verse two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. Forget not is just a way of saying, remember, remember his benefits. Remember all of God's blessings. And I think that's the start. That's the first step in our souls trying to complete this experience of blessing God. And now in verses three through five, he's going to lay out a list of these blessings that we have from the Lord, right? God is the one who's blessed us. Here are all these blessings of salvation on God's covenant people. And I think we're going to see somewhat of a movement through these verses. And I'll, try and, I'll try and show that, but I'm going to read verses 3 to 5 with you now first. Blessing 1, he forgives all your iniquity. Iniquity is just a, another word for sin. He heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Again, there's this movement, I think. It first starts with the very first blessing of God is to forgive us of all our iniquity. Our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion against God is what separates us. And it rightfully deserves judgment and condemnation. And so the first thing God does to bless us is to actually remove the threat of condemnation on us and prove that he's prepared to bless us richly. Second, what does he do next for us? He heals all our diseases. Yes, this certainly could mean physical ailments and diseases, which God was to do for the nation of Israel, should they be faithful to him. But how much more so our disease of a sick, sinful soul. The reason why we have all these iniquities and sins that need forgiving is because our own souls are rotten, are corrupted, are diseased with this desire for things that are not of God or wrongly ordering things and not preferencing God first, having other gods before him. And so when God forgives us of our sins, he also sends his spirit to us to cleanse us, to make us new, to clean us of that disease, and to give us a heart that actually loves him. That was the very promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. No doubt David hadn't read those texts. He hadn't heard those prophets yet. Those were 
after his time. But certainly this is a fair reading from the New, Te- New Testament Christian to read into this text here this enormous blessing that what makes the new covenant new is that God actually cleanses the heart. He puts his spirit not in a temple but in a people and he causes them to come alive to the things of God. Verse four, who redeems your life from the pit. Redeems to buy back, to purchase. All of us were destined for hell and destruction, eternal death, and God buys us back from the very pit of hell. But not only that, but he brings order to a chaotic life. He brings life to a life that was filled with death. How many of us is this not true of? I hope it's true of you. If you're a new Christian, I hope that you expectantly pray for this to be done in your life. That a life lived in rebellion against God, breaking his commandments, perhaps worshiping idols, living after our own lusts, brings about death and chaos. It breaks relationships. It enslaves us to sinful patterns of life. It harms the people in our lives. It harms us. It damages our own minds. And one thing God does when he saves us and he forgives our sins and he heals us of this disease is he's actually able to bring order out of the chaos we've made of our wrecked lives. Meditate on this for a a second, Christian. What would your life be like had you not been found and saved by Christ? Where would you be now if you were to continue on the trajectory that you were on when the gospel came crashing into your life, God forgave you of all your sins, he put a spirit in you and caused you to be born again. If that hadn't happened, what chaos, what disaster would you be reaping now? God redeemed you from that path. Verse four continues, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This could mean literally a crown. It also just very frequently means to surround or encircle something. So it's a God in our Christian life, as we pursue him, he surrounds us with steadfast love and mercy. Day by day, his mercies are new every morning, right? We experience this through the word, whether we're reading that or it's being preached to us on Sunday. His mercy, his love is communicated to us through his word, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper. He reminds us of his love and mercy for us as we pray for deeper intimacy with God, as we experience fellowship and love amongst the saints, and we're accepted, we're forgiven, we're loved on by one another, despite our faults, in light of Christ's grace, God surrounds us with love and mercy. And then finally, verse five, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is, reminds me of, of Psalm 63, with, which Joseph preached at the very beginning of this month. Psalm 63 has this line in verses three to six, it says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Joseph used the illustration of like potato chips for the soul, just junk food of the soul that we often fill our hearts with. And how in the Christian life, as we pursue more and more of God through his means of grace, he actually satisfies us, fills us, as if he's serving us high-end steak after steak after steak. Every day, we're able to feast on the love and mercy of God. He satisfies us with that which is good, so that, finally, your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's this picture that, again, our life has been redeemed from the pit. We've been surrounded with love and mercy, satisfied with good, and so now our energy, our zeal for the Lord, for the things of God, for his kingdom is renewed so that whether we are 13 years old, 30 years old, 90 years old, we can use all of our energy, our last bit, and lay it out the line, lay it on the line for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. I'm reminded of Matthew 6 when Christ says, don't be anxious about anything. He talks about material resources and whatnot that we might be fearful of not having from day to day. And he says, seek first the kingdom, and then all these things will be added to you. I think as he showers us with his goodness, with his mercy, with his steadfast love, we're able to give our attention wholly to the kingdom of God and trust that he will sort out the means of sustaining us for however much longer our life will be. 
Have you experienced this? Have you experienced complete forgiveness and new life in Christ? Primary way we do, we show this, commanded by Christ, is to baptize. Baptism itself is a symbol of this death to our old way of living as we're drowned in the waters of baptism, crucified with Christ, and then raised to new life, resurrected out of the waters to walk in new life. And then in verse 2, we're commanded of this psalm, Psalm 103, verse 2 says, forget not all his benefits. Forget not all of his benefits or remember his benefits, right? Remember your baptism. Your baptism itself preaches the whole truth of the the gospel and everything we just read in verses 3 to 5 to you. John Calvin writes in his Institutes, we must realize that at whatever time we are baptized, we are once and for all washed and purged for our whole life. Therefore, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory. Remember, recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. Love that. Calvin's theology of baptism is phenomenal. It's a little ironic that he was in favor of, of baptizing infants because an infant can't do this. An infant can't recall the memory of his or her baptism and fortify their mind with it. And so I'd ask you to consider this. If you haven't been baptized yet, if you haven't experienced this, but you desire Christ, you desire new life, forgiveness of sin, redemption of your life from the pit, to be surrounded with God's love and mercy, pursue that with the first step of baptism. God does this all over the Old Testament. A couple instances that come to mind is he causes people to erect these memorials of what he's done in their life. So when he commands his people to observe the Passover and the Exodus, he says, what's going to happen is you're going to be celebrating the supper year after year, the, the Passover. And when your children ask you, Daddy, Mommy, why do we do this? Why do we celebrate the Passover? Then you will tell them what the, what the Lord, your God, did for you to redeem you, rescue you out of Egypt. It's designed to pass along the memory of God's saving work from generation to generation. And Calvin here is saying the same thing about baptism. It's a memorial stone in our life that we can look back to over and over again and, quote, fortify our mind with it, that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. Martin Luther also wrote in his larger catechism, therefore, every Christian has enough in baptism to learn and to practice all his life. For he has always enough to do, always enough to do to believe firmly what it promises and brings, victory over death and the devil, forgiveness of sin, the grace of God, the entire Christ, and the Holy Ghost with his gifts that we can look on our baptism and we have enough work just to simply preach its truths to ourselves and to firmly believe them our whole lives as this little mini sermon. So I ask if you haven't experienced this, why not? God stands ready to bless you. That's the point of this psalm. How ready and eager God is to shower these blessings and benefits on his people. Old person, God stands ready to bless you. Young person, God stands ready to bless you. You can have your iniquity that needs forgiven. Let Christ wash you clean in the waters of baptism. Your soul is sick with sin. Let the great physician heal you. Your life is destined otherwise for death and hell. Let the Father buy you back with his own son's blood. You are surrounded on every side by trials, trouble, suffering. Let God instead surround you with steadfast love and mercy. You're stuffing your soul with spiritual potato chips like Netflix, Facebook, pornography, money, gossip. Let the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob satisfy your soul as with rich and fat foods and renew your strength like the eagles. As Jesus says in John 4 to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so now David turns in verses 6 to 10 to recall even more the corporate action of God, his saving graces for his people. Read verse 6 with me here. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Excuse me. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, in steadfast love. 
God's own character, the surety of what we're talking about, was revealed in, David is pointing us back to, the Exodus. Verse 6, he revealed his ways. Sorry, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Think of the slaves in Israel, oppressed by Pharaoh, unable to worship God rightly, not free, not able to enjoy the covenant promises God made to Abraham 400 years prior, that these people would inherit the land and be planted in the land of Canaan. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. God showed himself through his judgment on Pharaoh in the ten plagues, is rescuing his people out of, out of Egypt, leading them through the crossing of the Red Sea, bringing them to Mount Sinai, and forging a covenant with them, creating them as a new nation. About Sinai, God made a national covenant with Israel, saying, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, now that I've saved you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. At Mount Sinai, later Exodus 34, 6, God tells Israel who he is in his most essential attributes. And that's what David quotes now in verse 8. He's quoting, almost word for word, Exodus 34, 6, which is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. Meaning when the Old Testament wants you to think about who God is, it quotes Exodus 34, 6, which God spoke to Moses after the golden calf incident. You'll recall the people of Israel got worried that maybe Moses had died up on Mount Sinai while he's getting the commandments and such. And so they pool their jewelry together and melt it down. They make a golden calf. They start worshiping it and all kinds of other crazy behavior. And Moses comes down, trashes the Ten Commandments, and is like, what are you doing? And God threatens to destroy these people. He says, Moses, I'll just start over with you. And Moses pleads for them and says, no, Lord. No, don't do that. You made promises. You made a covenant with Abraham. Save these people. I know they're stiff-necked and terrible. In fact, kill me instead. And God says he won't. He will have mercy on these people. And he reveals his own name to them in this moment. Exodus 34, 6, he says, I am Yahweh. That's the Hebrew for I am. That's the name he revealed to, to Moses in Exodus 3. This is who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's what David is quoting here in verse 8. God made known his ways to his people by saving them, and then they even rebelled again, and God continued to show them mercy and love. These wicked, unfaithful Israelites, who then would go on to grumble against him and complain throughout all the wilderness journeys. They refuse to go into the land. They have to wait a generation until a faithful generation comes up who's willing to seize the land and trust God in that way. But for hundreds of years, God shows who he is to his people. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Contrast this with the Old Testament stereotype of God we get today. We hear things like, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, or he's like really angry all the time. He's just always crushing people with hailstones and lightning bolts. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. That is not the God of the Old Testament. Richard Dawkins in his God Delusion, he's a pretty famous atheist and opponent of Christianity, says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, and sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That is not true. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. David goes on in verses 9 to 10. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. David knew this firsthand. He himself had murdered one of his own soldiers so that he could marry his wife, tried to cover the whole thing up. David was a pretty wretched man in that moment. He revealed the disease in his own heart. 
And God, though he did discipline David, still restored him, healed him, did not take his spirit from him. David knows this. God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. Christian, think of your own sins. Think of how God ought to deal with you if he were to treat you as your sins deserve. If he were to count all your sins, who could stand before him? As my family's, one of our favorite hymns says, if God were to mark all of our iniquities, how could you possibly expect any benefit from him at all? God doesn't treat us according to the way we deserve. God made known his ways to Moses and the people, both to graciously save and to mercifully forgive. We had the golden calf incident, sorry. <clears throat> so David is thinking back on Israel's history towards the Exodus event, but certainly the fact that this is placed in book four of the Psalms we talked about last week kind of carries this theme of the exile in Babylon, actually. The kingdom of Israel has grown and now fallen. And so think of what hope this would offer to an exile in Babylon. He's thinking, we really screwed up. We worship Baal and other gods. We did not practice justice and love mercy. We polluted the Lord's Sabbath. We did not follow his commands. We didn't keep covenant. And now we're stuck in Babylon. Is there any hope? Is there any hope at all? And the psalm says to the exile, yes, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. You will be restored. You will come out of exile because he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. But why is God like this? Why doesn't he do that? I think I probably would on a lesser, lesser being. Verses 6 to 10 kind of showed us what God does, what he is like, what he does on behalf of his people. Verses 11 to 14 now are going to explain why he does that. Why he does that. It starts with the word for in verse 11. That's the word because. Because answers what question? Why? Right? Why? Because. Verse 11 through 13 are going to explain this. Why does he work righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed? Why will he not keep his anger forever? Why doesn't he deal with us according to our sins or pay us for our iniquities? Why not? He's got plenty of reasons to act that way. Why not? Read these sweet verses with me. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So why does God forgive and bless his undeserving people? Because that's who he is. His very character. He is love. He is compassion. These words find their truest meaning in God himself. God has not accidentally signed on to a contract where now, that he no longer wants to keep. He's not begrudging towards us when we come to him for forgiveness. He's not saying, shoot, ugh. They figured out if they repent and believe, I have to forgive them. Now I have to forgive them. No, he's eager to do this. Look at this word picture in verse 13. How beautiful is this? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I know every father in this room, I hope every father in this room, I know I certainly, when my own kids come to me and they're sorry for what they've done, maybe they're confessing something I didn't even know about yet, so quick, to be so thankful, say, Elias, I forgive you. Shiloh, I forgive you. I will not hold that against you. I'm so glad you told me. Let's work towards restoration. I'm so glad you brought this into the light. You brought this to my attention. You didn't try to hide this from me. Let's keep moving forward. I love you, buddy. God is even better than that. God is even more compassionate and loving than that when we come to him with our sins. And there's an even deeper why here. Look at verse 14. The four word again, for, or why. Why does he show compassion on those who fear him? For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. God knows our weak and troubled state. God knows what it's like to be human. He understands our condition. He's not unsympathetic to our light, to our plight. I'm going to read something from Hebrews 2. You can flip there with me if you like. 
God is intimately familiar with what it means to be human. He knows exactly what we're going through. He knows our temptations, our trials, our struggles. He knows how hard it is to get up in the morning and choose faithfulness. Hebrews 2 shows us this in a really beautiful way. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. I'm turning with you to show sympathy. I didn't bookmark it. Okay, Hebrews 2, verse 10 says, It was fitting that he, he's talking about Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, so Jesus made everything, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ, the founder of our salvation, became perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So Christ was made perfect, not went from being sinful to sinless, but became the ideal, the perfect savior through suffering everything you and I suffered. So that he can, as verse 13 tells us, know our frame. So he can remember that we are dust. Verse 14 continues. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's the key. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it's like to hunger and thirst. He was starving in the desert for 40 days. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Satan offered him a path to pleasure and power that didn't require any suffering. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He wept. He wept when he got the news that Lazarus had died. He knows what it's like for your family to scoff at your calling. His mother and brothers thought he was crazy. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by your closest friends. The 12 apostles all scattered when he was arrested and nobody showed up to defend him at his trial. When Psalm 103 verse 13, sorry, 14 says, he, God, knows our frame and remembers that we are dust, how much more is this true for us than it was for David? God himself took on flesh in the God-man Jesus Christ. He took on dust. He not only remembers that we are dust, but he became dust with us so that he could become a, as Hebrews 2 says, merciful and faithful high priest interceding for us. He knows. God knows our frame. God knows what it's like to be dust because he became dust. This is the very source of God's father-like compassion on us. Hebrews 4.15 also says that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is why God has compassion on us. It's not like some distant uncle who showers you with blessings, but like doesn't really know what's going on in your life. It's kind of nice to get the birthday card once a year. No, he's with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now verse 15 and 16 in one, Psalm 103 go on to explain these kind of weaknesses. What does it mean that we're dust? What does it mean? What is our frame like? Read verses 15 and 16 with me. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. He's using a metaphor, a word picture of both grass or flowers. Really easy to imagine that here in South Dakota. We get the beautiful spring rains, the snow's melting, everything's green. May, June, July. But already, are not things starting to brown up? Right? The grass has flowered out its, its seeds. It's drying up. And like by September, everything will be back to like dirt brown. That's what being a human is like. Or think of sunflowers, right? 
They're everywhere. They're in the ditches. They're in the fields. They're in our parks. How cool. Sunflower, this huge flower. It grows really tall, has this beautiful flower on it. But it won't be here this winter. The wind will come. It will knock it down. The plant will die. That's what it's like to be a human being. That's what it's like to be dust. And God himself knows that. But God isn't like that. Read verses 17 and 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. God's love and righteousness aren't like the sunflower. They're from everlasting to everlasting. But here's the key. They're only for those, look back at those verses we just read, verses 17 to 18, they're only for those who fear him, keep his covenant, and do his commandments. Everybody thinks God's on their side. Everyone wants God on their team. His unique, unfailing covenantal love, though, his hesed in Hebrew, is only for his covenant people. Everybody wants Jesus, best teacher in the world, meek and mild, gentle Jesus. If he can be for me or for my, you know, my agenda, my political party, then woo. But Jesus is not on everybody's side. In John 14, 23 to 24, Jesus says something very similar, almost identical to what we read here in Psalm 103. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus demonstrates he is equal with the Father, firstly, when he says in John 14, keep my commandments. I love those who keep my commandments. Psalm 103, it's the Father's commandments. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus himself is true divinity, truly God. But he's also effectively repeating the very same theme from David in the Psalm 103. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. God's steadfast love and all of his benefits, all these blessings we've been reading about are only for his covenant people. Remember all God's benefits and blessings in this psalm, forgiveness of sin, healing our diseases, redeeming your life from the pit, surrounding you with love and mercy, satisfying you with goodness. Those aren't for everyone. God's blessings are available, offered to anyone, but they are only received and secured by those who fear him, keep his covenant, and do his commandments. Read verse 19. I'm going to use an analogy from this verse. Verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom is over all. Kingly picture, like we got last week in Psalm 93. He's established his throne, his kingdom rules over all. So I want you to imagine God is king, or imagine a king in a land who has the rightful rule of that kingdom. And you, you and I, all humans really, are in rebellion against this king. We're trying to overthrow him. We're trying to put ourselves on the throne. We have rebelled against him. We've formed up in little groups to fight back against his armies. We're refusing to submit to his commands and his rules and live by his ways. We've renounced our citizenship. We've created our own flag and hoisted it. And we're prepared to go to battle against this rightful king. God has every right to just simply crush, vanquish the rebels. But he doesn't do that. Verse 13, sorry, verse 16, 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. For those who stop running, if you're willing to stop fighting, leave everything behind and simply surrender, he won't execute you. The king will receive you into his kingdom. This is crazy. There's no way the United States would do this. There's no way the kingdoms of the earth would do this. You'd be thrown in prison immediately. And yet the king of this world, God Almighty, says, if you just surrender, give up, I promise I'll pardon you. Here's a beautiful example from the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Paul is thrown in prison. They're singing some hymns. There's this giant earthquake, breaks open the, the jail cells and stuff. And the jailer freaks out. He's assuming everyone's going to run away. 
and escape, and then he'll be killed because he failed to do his job. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't kill yourself. We're all here. Don't worry. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Have you surrendered yet? Is this true of you, that you fear God? In fear, you've fallen before the king, you've surrendered, and said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I give up the fight. Have you surrendered yet? The Lord's love is on those who fear him and who keep his covenant. What does it mean to keep his covenant? In the old covenant, you kept covenant by circumcision. That's your connection to the Abrahamic covenant. That's your entrance into the community and by observing Sabbath. Every seven days, you rest, worshiped, things like that. Those were the distinctive markings of God's covenant people. There were ways that you worshiped him, honored him, showed your own faith in his promises that he's made. Today, as Christians, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. First, by baptism, we receive a new citizenship. God washes us clean and tells us we're no longer guilty of being rebels. And then the king takes these rebels who've come to him, begging for help. And again, instead of imprisoning them, exiling them, executing them for treason, he brings them into his throne room and he seats them at his table. The king seats you at his banquet table and sets before us a feast of bread and wine to remind us how much he loves us, that he actually executed his own son so that he could forgive us and show us his steadfast love and mercy. And so Christ says in the words of institution, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, remember what it took the king to forgive you and welcome you back into his kingdom. We enter the covenant by faith. And we keep the covenant. We stay in the covenant by faith. The Lord's Supper, the King's Feast, reminds us why he's so trustworthy. Because he has compassion on us and he knows our frame and he works righteousness for all who are oppressed. Week after week, God is saying, look what I did for you. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And so God's love are on those who fear him and keep his covenant. And to keep his covenant is to just keep believing Keep trusting. Keep trusting me. And then finally, verse 17 says, 18, that it's also on those who remember to do his commandments. Jesus' last words in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He has all authority. I'm the king. There is no other. My kingdom has come. Make disciples and baptize them. Receive the rebel traitors. Don't go out and kill them. Bring them into the kingdom. Bring them back. Restore them. And then finally, teach them to obey. Using this king analogy, imagine that you have surrendered to this wonderful king who has forgiven you all your traitorous deeds. And then not only that, put a uniform on you, cleaned you up, seated him as one of his own at his table, and continually, day after day, provides a feast of love and blessing to you. And then you refuse to live under the laws of his kingdom. That doesn't make any sense. Why would, you, why would you do that? It's not that you need to continue doing the commands and fulfill his law to have a seat at the table. It's that if you refuse to obey his laws, you'd be showing that you never really surrendered to begin with. To surrender is to say... I'll follow you. So here, God's love, Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18, his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Rebel sinners, surrender to the king. Receive citizenship through baptism. Have a seat at his table and begin learning what it means to live under his law in his kingdom. Christians, keep covenant. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is from 2 Peter chapter 1. This, listen to all this blessing. That's what the whole psalm's about. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which, more blessing, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, more blessing, you may become partakers of the divine nature. More blessing, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What more could you want, Christian? Then he says this, for this very reason, because you've received all of these blessings, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I mean, you've been brought back into the king's kingdom. Now live out your new citizenship that's been restored. Live out what it means to be a Christian living under the reign of Christ because you've already received all these benefits. Then he continues, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, right, someone who never really surrendered, someone who's fooling themselves, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's how the psalm started. Verse 2, forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. Remember, remember the Lord's faithfulness to you. And here Peter says, those who lack those qualities of godliness, those who aren't really surrendered, it's because they forgot. They forgot all of his blessings, that they were cleansed from their former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So wayward Christian, perhaps you've lost your wandering sheep. You've lost the fear of him. You've not kept covenant. You don't obey the king's commands. Or you don't even know what they are, maybe. The king is saying, come home. Rekindle a loving fear of the Lord. You can trust that he will receive you because of verse 13. The father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. When wayward children come home, good fathers don't turn them away, so now you had your chance. Wayward Christian, come home and let your Father receive you and give you compassion. What we've discussed today is the very standard of amazing. This is why David in this psalm is calling us to bless the Lord with the command, bless the Lord, because no king is like this king. No God is like this God. No king bestows so many benefits on rebels who by faith surrender their old way of life and ask for a new citizenship and a place in his kingdom. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, keep his covenant, and do his commandments. And so David ends the psalm in the same manner he began the psalm, with a call that we bless the Lord. Read the final verses with me, starting in 19, sorry, 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I still have no idea how the lesser can bless the greater. I don't even know what it means for you to bless God, but I think we've come closer to understanding the spirit of it, the gratitude, the trust, the delight of remembering all Christ's benefits, somehow in that experience of just simply relishing and resting in our security, in our great King who is so loving, so generous with His grace. Some way in that process, you begin to bless the Lord. I'm gonna end our time together by just prayerfully remembering those benefits that we read in verses three to five. I want you to just sit there and pray with me i give you some space in between each one of these. I'd ask you to offer up your own personal and specific prayer about how you have received these benefits specifically in your own life. So apply them to your own soul, apply them to your own heart, and pray with me, pray to God, thanking him, delighting in these benefits you've received. And if you've not received these benefits because you have not yet feared him, kept his covenant, 
or done his commandments. There's no reason you can't surrender in your seat right now. That between you and the Lord, you don't need anyone else to do it with you. You and the Lord, you can surrender and plead to be let back into his kingdom and kindle a fear of him in your own soul right now. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Again, I'll give you a few moments between each of these. Through Christ, God, you have forgiven all our sins. Through Christ, Father, you heal us of all of our diseases. Through Christ, Father, you redeemed our life from the pit. Through Christ, Father, you now surround us daily with steadfast love and mercy. And through Christ, Father, you satisfy us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.